me just give a quick uh, message from last week's message. Somebody asked me, uh, aren't you afraid that, you know, the message, and if you missed last week's message, it was all on the correct understanding of what it means to be judgmental, because there's a lot of misunderstanding about the word judgmental in the Bible, and are we supposed to be judgmental, are we not supposed to be judgmental? What, what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, it's very clear in Scripture that we are never to judge people outside the church. Like, if you are not a Jesus follower, if you didn't sign up to live by my standard, I've got no business going on Facebook and sharing my judgmental opinion about what people in the world are doing or whether I think it's right or wrong. They didn't sign up to live by the standard I signed up to live by. But inside the church, we're supposed to hold each other accountable. And so let me just say, that only works if you apply the first two weeks, which is love one another. You can't, you know, you self-proclaim to be the policeman of the church and go around judging everyone. That only works in context if you apply the first two weeks, which is Jesus said, by this, all men will know you are my disciples. If you love other disciples, if you love one another, if you love each other in the family of Christ, that works well. Well, today we're jumping into week number four of this series, Christian. Next week, Father's Day is going to be week number five. And let, let me just say, as we get into the message today, that if you, over the last couple of weeks, have been offended, you know, a little bit over the last couple of weeks through some of the messages and some of the stuff that you've heard, just wait for next week. We're going to take it up to a whole nother level. <laughs> I mean, if it's just a little bit, just, you know, just know next week we're going up to another level. And if you've been bored over the last couple of weeks, then come on back next week because it's going to get really exciting next week in this series. So I want you to come back. We're in this series called Christian. We're looking at this word Christian. And the reason we're looking at it is because nobody knows what it means. There's no definition for the word Christian. You can literally make it mean anything you want it to mean. In fact, what we've discovered is in the Bible, this word Christian is only mentioned three times. And all three times, it was a derogatory term, an insult given to people that followed Jesus, in which people who followed Jesus would never, ever, ever call themselves a Christian. And the problem is you can make being a Christian mean anything you want it to mean. You can sleep around, you can blow up abortion clinics, you can literally do anything you want as a Christian and nobody has any grounds to tell you otherwise. But Jesus referred to his followers by a very different term. And it's a term that should be disturbing to you today because it's so clearly defined and it's so clearly spelled out that if you want to follow me, this is exactly what it looks like. And it was the term disciple. And these first century followers, these first century disciples, they took Jesus literally. They took the label in the brand that Jesus gave them and they didn't play around with it, but they took it very, very seriously. And I want to show you what these first century followers did by taking this brand that Jesus gave them very, very seriously. If you go to the city of Rome today, One of the things you'll notice in the city of Rome is all throughout the city, on just about every single building in Rome, you see crosses. There's crosses on just about every, they they have literally decorated the entire city with these ornate crosses. They've affixed them to everything, uh, everywhere. Even the old ancient temples of Rome now have crosses at the top, if you go to the Colosseum and the Slave Gate or the Emperor's Gate in the Colosseum, you find these crosses and they're everywhere. 
And, and, and before you just kind of fast forward through history and say to yourself, well, it makes sense. It's Rome. I mean, doesn't the Pope live in Rome? Isn't the Vatican in Rome? So of course there's going to be crosses all over the city of Rome. Before you do that, let me take you back in history for a moment. Let's go back to AD 64 or AD 65, and let's go back to the, the city of ancient Rome. Nero is the emperor. He's the Caesar of Rome. Nero gets this bright idea to burn down the city so that he can rebuild it. Doesn't go well because he burns down people's businesses and he burns down their homes. And now the whole city is angry and he needs a scapegoat. And so what does Nero do? Well, the the ancient historian Tacitus tells us that Nero chose a group of people that was hated by the populace. And the populace called this group of people, called them what? Christians. And he affixed the blame to these Christians. This, this, again, it was something they were called by the populace. Christians didn't call themselves Christians. They called themselves something else. It was the populace that called them Christians. And so Nero uses them as a scapegoat. And he begins to inflict on the, the, these group of people, these Christians, the worst torture imaginable. He blames the city of Rome burning down on this group of people. And he begins to crucify them and kill them and torture them. It's what we have. Nero's circus came from this. Nero's circus was an arena in Rome where they used to, for sport, kill the Christians in just the most unimaginable ways. They would quarter them with horses. They would saw them in half, put them in boiling oil. They would crucify them. They would throw Christians, children, and women to wild beasts to be ripped apart into pieces and to gladiators. They they literally would light the city of Rome at night burning Christians on stakes. They they would put them up on poles and, and use Christians. They would cover them with oil, light them at night, and use them as street lights. The Romans found a way to impale a human being. They would, they would take a pole and they would sharpen the tip of the pole in such a way that they would, they would put a Christian on the tip of this pole and it would take them about 24 hours to die as the weight of their body would slowly go down on the pole until the tip of the pole would pierce their heart. This is going on in Rome during this time, AD 64, 65. It's some of the most horrific stuff you can imagine. And now I want you to imagine going outside the city of Rome during this time period. You go to a farm. On the back of the farm, there, there's a barn. And in the back of the barn huddles three Christian families who fled for fear of their life. And I want you to imagine the terror on these. They've lost everything. They lost their homes. They lost their businesses. They lost all of their possessions. Can you imagine the fear these fathers would have had about what's going to happen to my children if we're found out? If somebody turns us in, what's going to happen to my wife and and to my family? Because if you turned in a Christian, you were rewarded. If you gave them over to Nero and his circus and his army to to, to kill and, and, and just have fun with sport. So imagine what it would be like to be these families hiding in the back of the barn, and then imagine going to these families and asking them this question, did you know that in a matter of time, the city of Rome, the city which you fled from, one day, in really a short period of time, the entire city is going to be adorned with crosses. And these crosses aren't going to represent Rome. 
And they're not going to represent crucifixions. In fact, they're only going to represent one crucifixion. It's this Jewish carpenter that you worship and that you serve. Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. One day, the entire city of Rome will have crosses in memory of this person that you worship and that you serve. One day. All of the temples that they worship all of these false gods and Jupiter and everything else. One day, these temples will become tourist attractions with crosses affixed to the top. One day, Nero's circus, the very place people were terrified of. One day, they're going to build a cathedral on the very grounds of Nero's circus. And this cathedral is going to be dedicated to Peter the fisherman who would become the leader of this movement called the way, which one day would be called Christianity. I mean, one day, they're they're not going to worship Jupiter anymore. The whole city is going to be adorned with crosses in memory of this Jesus. Could you imagine in AD 64, 65, what would go through their mind if you told them that? They would say, you're crazy. That's ridiculous. There's no way Rome will ever bow a knee to this Jesus. That's impossible. Rome is forever. Jupiter is forever. Our movement is a small movement. We're, 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 just, we're just this fledgling group of people, and the few of us that are there are being killed every day. There's not going to be any of us left. Now, we love Jesus, and we give our life for him, but you don't understand. We're small. There's no way Rome will ever change. And yet, in a matter of less than 300 years, the Roman Empire was completely turned upside down. Let me tell you how it happened. Well, first, let me tell you how it didn't happen. It didn't happen because a group of people that followed Jesus decided to be Christians. That's how it didn't happen. See, the people that followed Jesus, they they did not lower themselves into just being Christians. But what they did is they actually embraced the teachings of Jesus, the brand and the label that Jesus gave them. And over time, they changed the entire world. They, 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 They changed everything. They gave their lives. So let me ask you today, what are you doing? with your life? What am I doing? Like, what are we really doing for Jesus? And why would we settle for being a Christian, which we can't even define, we don't even know what that means, when Jesus gave us such very clear and specific instructions? So what I want to do today is I want to read from the speech that Jesus used to kick it all off. Jesus gave a speech early on in his ministry to kind of kick off his movement, the movement that would change the world, the movement that would one day overthrow the Roman Empire. He's performing miracles. He's very popular. He's a rock star. There's thousands of people that are gathered to him on this hill. That's why they call it the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus basically sets the stage and he introduces his followers to this new worldview, this new, the behavior and the customs and what it means to be his follower. And he, and he says in Matthew chapter five, sorry, one second. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside. It's why we get Sermon on the Mount. And he sat down, his disciples. Now, again, he didn't call them Christians. He called them disciples. They didn't use the word Christian. His disciples came to him 
And he began to teach them, and he said, and now what I'm about to do, this, this is, I want you to picture this. This is the, the epic speech that the general gives in the movie to motivate the troops. This is the halftime locker room speech from the coach. This is Braveheart. Every man dies, but not every man leaves. He's now going to give you kind of the revolutionary speech that's going to, that's going to turn the Roman world upside down, shut down Rome. It's going to change everything. And he begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There you go. That's it. That's going to change the world. And it goes on. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Really, Jesus? That's it? We're going to change the world with that? That's, that's the best you've got? No, there, there, there's actually more. Blessed are the meek, the meek, the gentle, the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Okay, Jesus, time out for a second. Meek? Really? Jesus, are you from around here? Do you know what's going on? Have you ever heard about Rome? I mean, the meek inherit the earth? We can't even control our own land. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful. The merciful, you see it with the Romans, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Uh, Okay, okay, another, another question, Jesus. Peacemakers? Do you know what happens to people who make peace with Rome? They're swallowed up. They lose their culture, they lose their identity, they lose it all. They spend the rest of their life paying tribute and taxes to Rome, they lose it all. That's what happens to peacemakers, Jesus. Matthew, you writing this down? I don't even know if this is worth writing down. I mean, where is this speech going, Jesus? Blessed are those who are persecuted. That, that, that's, that's a way to really rally people together. Because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I think this is probably the reaction Jesus got that day. I mean, people were just kind of like stunned silence. I'm sure somebody's sitting in the crowd thinking, I hope he does a miracle soon because this speech is going nowhere. I mean, really, Jesus, that's all you got? That's, we're going to overthrow Rome with that? I mean, we want you to be a warrior, a leader. Come on, Jesus. All right, all right, all right. Just, just let, Jesus, let's just review quickly. We are poor, sad, meek, Righteous, merciful, pure, peaceful, persecuted, insulted people waiting for a reward in heaven. That's who we are. That's what we're going to overthrow an empire on. To which I'm sure Jesus kind of, you know, we don't know. He he probably just chuckled to himself, kind of smiled to himself. And yet, I'll tell you what happened. In under 300 years, which historically speaking is a very, very short amount of time. 
they changed the world. They, they turned the entire world upside down. Nobody's worshiping Jupiter anymore. Nobody's going to the pantheon of gods anymore. Rome is now a Christian nation. Crosses are everywhere. Because a group of his followers took him very, very seriously. So Jesus now, he kind of backs up and he says, okay, you're going you're to forget all of that. So what I want to do is I want to give you two word pictures that kind of sums all of that up. Let me make this very, very practical. Let me kind of wrap all of that up for you and just give you two very simple word pictures. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth, to which everyone in the audience would have known exactly what that meant. Salt was a preservative. They didn't have refrigerators, so they used salt to preserve food so it wouldn't spoil or rot. Because a preservative is this, and this is just you know to make sure you learn something today in case you don't learn anything else. A preservative is a substance added to food to prevent decomposition. In other words, where there is no preservative, things decompose. Food decomposes, it rots, it spoils where there is no preservative. So what Jesus was trying to communicate to this group of people and what he's saying to us today is simply this. You are the preservative of the entire earth. You, as his followers, as his disciples, you are the preservative. If, if we, as his followers, do not preserve, the earth rots. Culture rots if we don't do our job and preserve. And I want you to just understand the world that he's in. See, it's so hard to understand this as an American. It's so hard to understand this in our Western uh, mentality, our Western world, because it's just a very different world. He's speaking to a group of people who are living under a worldview that whoever has the might is right. Like if you want to know what is right and wrong, if you want to know what is morally acceptable, if you want to know what virtue is, you look for the biggest army. You look for the person with the longest sword because they decide who's right and who's wrong. There's no such thing as common human decency and and virtue and morality. I mean, this is a world where women had zero rights. Children had even fewer rights. I mean, this is a world that we can't understand. Mercy, compassion, generosity, those aren't virtues to be esteemed. Those are for weak people. Those are for losers. He's talking to a very different world, a world we can't even imagine. The only way to try to understand this is to go to different parts of the world today where there's countries that still operate under this world view. See, this is what we can't appreciate as Americans in our Western world. Most of what you assume, most of what we assume is common human decency is not common human decency. It's learned. Like we, you know, what the world looks at Americans as being kind and generous and helpful. That's not because of the way we are as Americans. That's because of the way we learn to be as a nation. Because our nation, our founding forefathers built this on Judeo-Christian ethics, ethics that were built into the fabric of who we are. See, we can't imagine a world where women would be treated less than a man, yet There was a point in our nation where it was that way. And yet somehow we intuitively knew that it was wrong and we worked to correct it. We can't imagine living in a world where it's okay for one human being to own another human being. And yet in our nation, that was the case. But there was a time where our national conscience caught up to us and we fought to right a terrible 
terrible wrong in our nation. See, we as Americans, we believe and we know that children are precious. But have you ever stopped to ask, why do we think children are precious when other cultures and other countries don't feel that way at all? See, it's stuff that we learned. Why is it that when somebody is generous and somebody is is kind, we look at that as a good thing as Americans, yet in other parts of the world, it's weak? See, why do we think it's good? It's not human nature. It's not, there, there's no such thing as common human decency. See, where that comes from is, it, is it's a reflection of a worldview that says there is one true God. And all of us are going to stand before him one day and give an account of our life, especially of how we treated others. Because this God loves every single person, every person you will ever meet, every person you will ever look eyeball to eyeball with is somebody that God loves. Everybody is precious to him. And this is found in ancient Judaism and it exploded through the teachings of Jesus. And the first century Christians and disciples, they grabbed onto that and they believed it and they changed the entire world. And Jesus basically said to them, you have no standing, but you are the last stand. See, this is what it means to be salt of the earth. You have no standing. You've lost it all. You've lost your businesses, you've lost your homes, some of you are losing your life, you're losing your family, you don't have political power, you don't have financial power, you have no standing at all, but you're the last stand for this world, and if you don't stand, this world will rot, this world will decompose, this world will fall apart. If you're not the salt of the earth, the earth will rot, and if you think it's bad now, just give up and see how bad it can really get. See, we can't fully appreciate this as Americans, can we? But we benefit every single day from a worldview that says men and women are created in the image of God. And because they are created in the image of God, they have value. And that's not intuitive. That is a learned behavior that we have learned from our founding forefathers and our ancestors in this nation. Don't believe me? Look at human trafficking. Look at sex slavery in the world. You're shocked and you say, well, how could anybody treat another human being that way? They simply do not see the world the way you see the world. And the way you see the world is not just because of who you are as a human being. The way you see the world is a learned behavior that comes through a Judeo-Christian ethic that was built into the very fabric of who we are as Americans. See, Jesus taught this. Jesus, Jesus started the whole thing when he taught us to pray. And he says, when you pray, when, when you come to God, I want you to use these two words, our Father. And those two words exploded around the world. Because all of a sudden, God became a God with personality. God became a God that was real, that was intimate, a God that you could know. See, he's talking to, to, to a day and age where it was all about the Greek gods. And the Greek gods didn't love mankind. The Greek gods toyed with human beings. Human beings were pawns. And here comes Jesus saying, no, 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 God is not toying with you. God loves you. He's a father and he's for you. And if God loves us, it means we've got value and it means we got worth. And here's what else happens. When I understand that God loves you, then it becomes very, very, very important how I treat you. And when you understand that God loves me, it becomes very, very important for how you treat me. So he gives us this word picture, you are the salt of the earth. Then he goes on to say, you are the light of the world. You are the light. 
I don't want to be a light. I just want to be a Christian and go to heaven when I die. I mean, I don't want to be salt. I don't want to be light. Just leave me alone. I mean, I just prayed that magical prayer. Now I just want to go back and raise my family and kind of keep to myself. And I don't want to go be salt and be light. Just, just let me go to heaven when I die. And Jesus is saying, hey, who taught you that? Who taught you that? I mean, why have we bought into that lie here in North County that, that my faith is a private thing and I just want to be a good person and raise my family and I don't want to have to be salt and I don't want to have to be light. And Jesus is saying, who taught you that? That is not what it means to be my follower. That's what it means to be a Christian. And we don't want to be Christians. We want to be followers. And, and understand the context. He says, you are the light of the world. World, world, the whole world, planet Earth. He's talking to a group of people whose world was very, very small. I mean, people literally, they they lived and died within 15 miles of where they were born. He's talking to a group of people that, that didn't even know certain continents existed that now have churches on them today because this group of first century people took very, very seriously what it meant to be salt and what it meant to be light. He goes on to say, you're a town placed on a hill. Now, I know a lot of English Bibles use the word built, a city built on a hill. But in the Greek, it's actually more like place because the Greek word connotates being strategic or being intentional. You're a town that was placed strategically or intentionally placed on a hill and it cannot be hidden. And if you understand kind of the Middle Eastern world at this time, it was very hilly and very flat. And so they would strategically locate cities up into the hills where you could see them for miles and miles away. The cities were built out of white limestone, so in the daytime the sun would reflect and you could see it for miles. And at night you put a lamp, the oil lamps that would go throughout the city that you could literally be miles and miles away and recognize these cities because they were strategically located. And what Jesus was saying to this group of people during the Sermon on the Mount and what he's saying to us today is simply this. You are a strategically placed town. You are a strategically placed town. And I know some of you are thinking, I'm not strategically placed at all. I was transferred here from Arizona and then I got here and I lost my job. Now I just want to go home and I'm just kind of stuck. No, it wasn't random at all. You have to understand your life was not random at all. You were strategically placed. The home that you live in, the job that you have, the neighborhood, the school that you go to, None of that is random. God has strategically placed you to be a light, a city on a hill. He goes on to say, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. They don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. See, this is the problem with Christians. See, the problem with Christians is we're so busy shining our light in the light. And we don't call them bowls anymore. We call them churches. And the only time we get out our light is on Sunday morning when we shine it with everyone else that has a light. And let me ask you a question. Where does light work best? We don't need your light here on Sunday. We need your light Monday morning at work. That's where your light is needed. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to who? To everyone in the house. You're called to give light to everyone that you work with to everyone in your neighbor. Are your neighbor's life better because you live next door to them? Are you a strategically placed light? 
hill. He goes on to say, in the same way, in what same way? In the same way you strategically and intentionally put a city on a hill where it's visible for miles and miles. In the same way you take a light and you, a lamp and you put it on a stand so that everybody in the house can benefit from it. In the same way, let your light shine before others. And, and here's the problem. The way many of us have interpreted the rest of the verse for years is this. That they may see your church attendance and say, dang, he's a good Christian. That's the way many of us have interpreted that for years. It's what I do on Sunday. No, it's not what you do on Sunday. I think I unplugged myself. There we go. Jesus goes on to say that they may see your good deeds and glorify. Though What's going to happen when they see your good deeds, when they see the life that you live, when they see the good works and your kindness and your compassion and the way you serve and the way you give, they're going to glorify your Father in heaven. This is so powerful. This is such a powerful truth. He's saying, I want you to live your life in such a way that people connect the dots that they realize this is not just you being a nice person, that this is way bigger than you just being a nice person. There's something bigger inside of you that they connect the dots to your father in heaven. They say, nobody's that kind. I mean, they take in children that aren't even their own. Nobody serves like that. Nobody gives like that. They, they give foolishly. I mean, they, they give till it hurts. They make sacrifices. Nobody does that. Nobody. And what's going to happen when they see your light, when they see, that's why our team went down to Mexico yesterday. Why? So that people will end up, they're not going down so that people pat them on the back. Man, you're such a good person to go into Mexico. No, they're doing, they don't want the credit. They want people to glorify their father in heaven for what they're doing. That's what it's all about. I want you to live this extraordinary, I want you to outshine everybody. And at the appropriate time, you can help them connect the dots. But don't let them give you the credit. You're not doing it so that you become a good. You're doing it so that they'll connect the dots and glorify your Father in heaven. And let me say, one of the things I absolutely love about our church is we have some of the most incredible people in the world in our church, and they get this. They understand it. That's why they were down in Mexico yesterday. They they, they are so good at doing this. But can I say, there are some of you here today that you're just happy to go to heaven. You just want to be a Christian. Leave me alone. Just let me be a Christian. I don't want to be a salt. I don't want to be light. I just want to go to heaven when I die. Just let me be a Christian. And Jesus is saying, I never called you a Christian. Who told you you could do that? Who allowed you to turn this into something it was never meant to be? You are salt. You are light. And see, the first century followers, they got this right. See, these first century Christians, they understood this. They knew what it meant to be salt. They knew what it meant to be like. These first century followers, they would go down to the rivers where people would discard babies and children. They couldn't take care of them or couldn't afford them or didn't want them anymore. And they would, they would just leave babies to die. And these first century Christians living in poverty, being persecuted, they would go down to the rivers and they would bring these children home into their own home and they would raise them as their own. 
Anytime a plague would break out in a city and the pagan priest would split town because he knew who everyone was going to come see, the Christians would rush into the city and they would care for people and they would nurse people. They barely knew, knowing it would risk their life, knowing many of them actually died taking care of people with the plague. And people looked at these first century Christians and they said, there's something different. They're not even afraid of death. Look at the way they give. Look at the way they serve. They help people they don't know. They're kind. They're caring. Nobody lives like that. And what these early century Christians did is they took this pagan, Roman, Greek world and they began to connect the dots. And they began to glorify their father in heaven and they overthrew the Roman Empire. They turned the world upside down because some people understood what it meant to be salt and light and some people connected the dots and the entire world changed. It wasn't through good preaching. It wasn't through good teaching. It was through powerful living from people who took very seriously be salt and be light. So this is what I think Jesus would say to us today. Don't settle for Christian. Don't settle for being a Christian. Be salt. Be light. Do something with your life. It's not about just hanging out on Sunday and being a part of a club and learning how to be. No, it's about being salt and being light every single day of the week. And and here's what I understand about your story. I don't even have to know your story to know your story. The reason so many of you here today are Christians, uh, and I know you don't even want to use that word anymore because you think the pastor's going to get mad if I call myself a Christian, and don't worry, the series will be over soon and it'll go back to normal, but the reason you're a disciple, you're a follower, here's what I understand about your story. You're a follower today because somebody in your life was salt and light. And can I tell you, they didn't even mean to be. They weren't even trying to be. But because they were salt and they were life, you somehow connected the dots and you now have a relationship with the Father and you have a completely different worldview because somebody was salt and light. Can I tell you, they didn't see themselves as a strategically placed town while they were working at Target or your biotech firm or in the Marines. They didn't see it at all. And you now look back on their life and you say it was providential. God brought them into my life and they didn't see it as providence at all. That house next to you that sat empty on the market for months and months and months. And then all of a sudden that Christian family bought it and you're like, oh no, now we got Christians moving into the neighborhood. But the way they lived their life, there was something so different and attractive, their kindness and their generosity that they literally drew you in. And now you say it was providential. They bought that home and they didn't see it as providential at all. They were just doing what they knew to do. They were just simply being salt and being Light. Some of you prayed for your husband or your wife that God would bring somebody to be salt and life in their life. And God brought somebody. Now your spouse is changed. And the truth is they had no idea that they were salt or light. They, they, didn't, they didn't know it at all. See, this, this is what I understand about salt and what I understand about light. If, if you're still kind of in the mindset of, I just want to be a Christian, leave me alone. L- let, me, let me give you two facts about salt and light. Here's the first one. Salt always preserves. Salt always preserves. It never not works. If it is salt, it is preserving. And light always shows the way. Salt always preserves. Light always shows the way. 
Meaning salt and light are working even when you don't see them working. You may not see the impact that you're making at work. You may be in a job where, where, where you're saying, I'm not even allowed to share my faith at work. They're watching your life. And they're going to connect the dots because of the way you live, because you're living differently than everyone else. And it's not your words. It's not necessarily your message, but it's your lifestyle. See, when you are salt and light, here's the truth. It has the potential to change everything. And we may not even see or know the impact we're making until the day we get to heaven and God kind of gives you the highlight reel of your life and you see the different impacts and the different lives that were changed and you didn't know it at all. But they were watching you. You may think no one at work knows that I'm a Christian. I guarantee that's not true. They know and they're watching you. They're watching you. They're watching the way you handle being persecuted. They're watching the way you handle being insulted. Man, the the guy just insulted him to his face. And did you see the way he handled it? I mean, he just loved and forgave the guy. Nobody does that. I mean, it didn't even faze him. And look, look how he turned around and was kind to the guy that just stabbed him in the back. Who does that? They're watching you. They're watching you. They're watching you be salt and be light, or they're watching you be Christians. And this is what we know to be true. Salt and light has the potential to change everything. Nobody would ever believe the city of Rome would bend a knee to Jesus. Nobody would ever believe that to be true. You go back to to the first century... And if you would have tried to tell them that one day the city of Rome would have crosses everywhere, they would have looked at you like a fool. But there were a group of people who took very seriously what Jesus taught. Took very seriously what Jesus said, what it meant to be salt and what it meant to be light. And they changed the world. They changed the world. So again, let me ask you, what are you doing for Jesus? What are we doing as a church? I love one of our elders, uh, Ed White. He, he always makes this statement. It always haunts me. He says, who's going to be in heaven because of you? And think about that for a moment. Who's going to be in heaven because of you? Where are your neighbors going to spend eternity because they're your neighbor? Are they connecting the dots? Are you salt and light to your neighborhood? Where's your coworkers going to spend eternity because of your life? Because you were strategically placed in that job. Wasn't an accident. So let me ask you again, who's going to be in heaven because of you? So we've got a chance to be salt and light. And we know through history that when you live as salt and life, you can make a very, very big change. You can overthrow empires. That would have seemed impossible to overthrow through the message of Jesus. Would you close your eyes with me for a moment? Before we leave today, I want to throw out a strong challenge to anybody that needs to make a decision today to be a disciple. I'm not asking you to become a Christian. We don't even know what that means. I'm asking you to make a decision to follow Jesus with your whole life, to be a follower of Jesus. And and there's two groups of people that need to make that decision. There's some of you today, it could be the very first time you've ever made that decision. Like you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, to be a disciple. And you need to make that decision today. And then there's others of you here today that 
you've been living as a Christian and it's time to become a disciple. It's time to take your faith to the next level. It's time to make it real. This is real. We don't need a place to hang out on Sunday morning so that we feel good about ourselves. We're here to be empowered, to be salt and light and change the world. And so some of you need to make this real today. You need to leave behind being a Christian and you need to step into being a disciple. And so I want to pray with you. Anyone that needs to make either one of those decisions, whether you need to make it for the first time or whether you need to just step up to the next level of your faith and really be a disciple. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. You don't have to walk down to the front to do this. This is just a very simple prayer that you can pray in your heart today. So I know uh, who's making the commitment with me with, with nobody looking around, just out of respect. This is a moment between you and God. If you want to pray with me, would you just slip up your hand and say, I'm going to join you in that prayer today. Thank you. 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 I appreciate all those hands. You can put them down. The prayer is very simple. Just, you can do it in your own words or you can use the words I give you, but in your heart, I want you to just pray this right now. Say, Jesus, today, I'm committing to be your disciple. I know it's not going to be easy, but I'm going to serve you and I'm going to follow you. Forgive me for any areas where I've missed it, thank you for loving me and opening the door for me to have a relationship with your father in Jesus name amen I want to thank you for joining us today Uh, if you prayed with me and you want to understand what the next steps are on your connection card there's two boxes one says I'm committing my life to Christ one says I'm renewing my commitment to Christ if you check either one of those boxes we'll email you some next steps of what it really means to follow him or you could join us for our growth track here which is really the the best way to get engaged and involved is to go through our growth track as a church would you stand with me as we say a closing prayer Father in the name of Jesus God let us be disciples let us leave behind trying to be Christians since we don't even really understand that anyways. And let us follow and serve you. And really, God, speak to us of what we can do this week to be salt and light to the people around us. In the name of Jesus, amen. We'll see you next week for Father's Day. Have a great Sunday.